Hello and welcome to the 31st edition of the Two Black Two Nerdy Podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm your host, Chris. And um, today we have a special guest with us, um, one of Chris's friends. He's going to be here with us while we discuss the the legacy of Avatar The Last Airbender. So, um, Chris Butler, I don't know if you want to introduce your friend and then he can um, he can give a little introduction about himself. Yeah, so with me today, I have Chris William, a.k.a. Nemo. Uh, we'll get three Chris's for the price of two. <laughs> Oh God! I'm not sure if that's. I don't. I don't. I don't know if that means they save money or what. But <laughs> you can't beat a good deal, right? Uh, so, Chris, tell the people a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do. Well, um, I'm a nerd by trade, and by that I mean I'm unemployed. Um, I'm a current law student at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, which is in St. Louis, oddly enough, um, from Camden, New Jersey. And I think that Avatar is one of the best cartoons I've ever seen in my life. Um, I, would, I, I think that if I ever had the money to get a good VR set, I would buy it just to get tea from Uncle Iroh and Bossing City. Like, I mean, I'd also do other things with the VR set that we won't get into here, but that would definitely be up top on the list. And also, um, also like to write, I have some written work on hip hop and uh, race relations, and I did stand up before the global um, disease crisis, so I don't do that anymore, but I used to, so hopefully um, it's be a good opportunity to tell a few jokes and whatnot. All right. Well, uh, this is going to be a fun discussion because uh, we all love the show. Um, It you know, I have to echo Chris's sentiments. Not, I don't only think it's one of the greatest animated television shows I've ever seen, but I think it might be one of the greatest shows I've ever seen um, for reasons we'll get into. But uh, first question that I have is why do you love the show? Um, is that question? Yeah, who do you want to do? Who do you want to start? Does it matter? Uh, we'll let Chris go first. Chris Nemo. Which <laughs> we'll go with yeah, you'll be Nemo for the podcast. Well, thank you. I've always liked that name. So um then just like the the nerdy note, it's I realize if you introduce yourself as nobody, people look at you like you're an asshole. But if you say, Oh, my name is Nemo, they're like, Oh, like the fish? Which is because people think of finding Nemo, but Nemo is Latin for no one. So <laughs> it's a good it's a good stand in name. Um I really like the show because the each of the characters leaves an impression on you. At least to me, it's like I, if somebody I'm like I'm really bad with um, names, but if somebody says uh, Zuko or the Dai Li as like a group, or like uh, Kyoshi or Boomy, like the name brings back a face and it brings back a feeling. Each character feels different. Even like gag characters like uh, Cabbage Guy, they found <laughs> a way to make them relatable, you know. And it's it's not like every it's not like anything I've ever seen. You know, it's it's one of those shows that reaches the the level of character depth that you usually associate with books that have thousands upon thousands of pages with which they can elaborate on a character, you know. 
but Avatar is a special way. Uh, both Airbender and uh, the the one that is still Avatar that I don't like as much. I, <laughs> I won't be saying I won't say its name. Um, but they just have a way of introducing characters that sticks with you, you know. And the storytelling is beautiful. The world the world building is beautiful, and just the intricacy of how they created psychological profiles for each and every one of their characters. Like the, we can do full spoilers, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So one of the things that I think that that gets me is like it's one of those things where like years later you come back to it and you're like, wait, they thought about that shit. Like they noticed where. Like, like there, there are marks on Aang's body when electricity went through him, you know, from uh, Azula or Fire Lord Ozai, um, or like when Aang and Zuko are being, are with the firebender, with the dragons to learn firebending, right? There's this one scene where the fire, the, the dragons breathe fire around them, and Aang. He puts his guard up and like has his hands to like protect like his torso and his upper body. Um, but there's this moment where you see that Prince Zuko is one of Firebender. You think his response would be, "Oh, not being attacked by fire. Maybe I can redirect it or do something to protect myself." But his go-to response when fire comes at him is to shield the side of his face where his dad burned him in the Agni Kai. And like shit like that just takes a level of world building and love in the establishment and flourishing of a character that you don't really see in other shows. And that is, I just think it's a beautiful thing. So yeah, I like this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I can, you just want me to answer what I like yeah. Avatar. Yeah, I mean, uh, Nemo, I, I definitely would just echo pretty much everything you said. I mean, it's very rare that you have a show and not just, not just animated shows, but even like, any show that takes into account world building, continuity, you know, there are, there's progression and arcs for, you know, a lot of the, there's, you know, consistent progression and arcs for a lot of the different characters. And, um, and even like me, like I'm a political nerd and there's even like political lessons in the show that I went over my head as a kid that I'm watching as an adult. And I'm like, man, do I live in the Fire Nation? You know. <laughs> yeah. So yes. yes. Someone got mad at me for that too. And I was just like, mm. but um Fire Nation. Yeah, it's it's rarely a sh- it you rarely find shows that um I guess put that much care into them that are relatively timeless like i mean avatar was good back then it's still good it'll be good in 10 20 years you know it's something that in my opinion will only it, it it's aged well i guess is what i'm trying to say and i've been enjoying the uh fandom coming back since it dropped on netflix what a couple months ago i think and you know now there's avatar tiktoks and you know a lot of good stuff and i'm like oh yeah people really did like this show huh but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a fantastic show. It's definitely one of my favorites. I don't know if I like it more than Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. I would probably put them both next to each other as far as, like, favorite, like, animated things. But I like it a lot for sure. For me, uh, to not 
um, restate any of the things that you all have said, um, but the emotional intelligence and depth of the show uh, for the topics and things it covered, like genocide, uh, physical and emotional abuse from parents uh, and other family members, war, mm. spirituality, um, matters of life and death, sexuality, you know, it, it covered such a wide array of issues in a kid show and it presented it in a way that kids could understand it um and the other thing that happened is even though you had three seasons or books that everybody's character art paid off you know everybody grew everybody developed the skills that you saw initially they learned new skills when you introduced new characters they were uh, woven into the fabric of the group seamlessly. Um, you had character fan favorites that only show up for you know a few episodes or a few minutes, um, and it is such intricately written and so well written that you have people that you know. I started watching it when it first came on, so I was eleven or maybe Tinker came on two thousand five. So. Um, and, you know, I love it as much as then. I think maybe I love it more now. Uh, one of my friends who just started watching it, she loves the show, and she started watching it at 25. Um, so it, it, it captures people from all ages. Um, the characters will hit you, not just the human characters, but the animal characters, too. Appa mm -hmm. and Momo, you feel for those characters. Appa's Lost Days is one of the saddest episodes of television that I have ever mm -hmm. seen. Um, you know, uh, you have side characters that become well beloved, like Iro, uh, who honestly might be probably people's top three in, in the characters. Um, and then you also have they deal with disability, so you had Toph, who was blind. Um, you had uh, the mechanist son, I can't remember his name at the moment, who was in a wheelchair. Um, yeah. And uh, you just you it just deals with so many different issues and each nation had a different culture. And you saw how even though each nation respected its own culture, each culture had its own issues. And you saw that reflected in the characters, especially being children and teenagers coming to grips uh, as they're coming up at a certain age, how to deal with the world they live in, the world that they're going out into and how they want to change it. Yeah, right. It's good. That, that, that's just some of my. Oh, also, you know, yeah, character arts actually finished, unlike Game of Thrones. Anyway, oh. uh, we, don't, we don't we don't say that here. Yeah. Uh, so the next one is, what is your favorite book or season? Um, you 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 can go ahead. Well, for my favorite book is the last one, uh, Book of Fire. I think that. All of the narratives, they come together in a way that is, um, is very satisfying. Because one of the problems when you create a narrative is you're like, okay, it's payoff time. How do we have a payoff that comes off in a way that, isn't, that doesn't feel cheap or mm -hmm. rushed? We're basically like, how do we do the opposite of the final season of Game of Thrones since the, you know, since the name has already been said? And there are two shows that come to mind where I think of like a, a big bad that has been like drummed up as being like 
the thing that everyone has been working to fight against, and it's not immediately um, dissatisfying once you see like the boogeyman on the screen, you know, because that's the thing about drama, you know, like when you know there's some, a big bad coming, it's always the the lead up to, oh, this is the big bad in the room. That's the most terrifying. And after you see them, it begins to wane. But only two times that come to mind is the lead up to fighting the Fire Lord was actually worth it. And seeing Madara in Naruto Shippuden, like, because folks are waiting years to see this, to see this dude. And then like, you know, that scene where he comes up, like his eyes get the movement. It's like, oh shit, this is happening. This yeah, is really happening. yeah. <laughs> you know? I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. You know, but like, like, uh, it, 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 it was, it was long enough to where the, you know, like the fights never felt formulaic, you know, mm-hmm. like Dragon Ball Z, the fights are formulaic. We get it. Goku's going to kick some ass. Vegeta's going to get hurt. Yamcha might die again. <laughs> Everybody acknowledges Krillin is the strongest human, but he's only there to show how weak humans are in relation to the big bad. But with all the conflicts, be it the character conflict of, like, say, I- I- Iroh trying to um, atone for the damage he's done as a general or Zuko's self-overcoming by finding out that one's journey is should be determined by oneself and not like, some external authority figure or, like, Aang trying to, just, trying to reconcile pacifism with defeating a warlord like all every one of those conflicts is worked up to and is resolved in a way that is earned and is satisfying and like the catharsis that results from being able to see that and feel like you've played a part in seeing like the the journey over time i love it yeah uh i'm i'm gonna be honest the first time i saw uh sozin's comet i did not feel satisfied it wasn't until subsequent viewings that I was like, okay, I love this. This is brilliant. I, I think I had built, uh, I guess I sort of wasn't satisfied with Aang taking his bending away until I started to pay attention more on subsequent viewings and started to see uh, different things and how it all made sense, even from the beginning of the show. But once I did that, it's, I, it sort of made sense to me. Um, and I, I do love it. It is a very satisfying finale now. Um, my favorite book is actually book two. Um, because it introduced arguably my favorite character in Toph. Um, I love the world building that it did, starting fresh off of coming from the North Pole. Um, I love the library episode. Uh, with Tong, um, the but the season finale for me, the two-parter, uh, the Crossroads of Destiny, I think is the best finale that the show has because for me it draws parallels to Empire Strikes Back, mm. um, where you have all the main characters split up, um, they get trapped, so you can pretty much say like Toph is Han Solo. Um, Tara is Leia and Momo Chewbacca. Um, Sokka is actually not trapped, but he's with his family. So he is in a sort of different emotional situation. And Aang is being uh, trained by Guru Tati to 
master the avatar state and he sees that katara is in trouble and he has to choose between gaining more power or saving his friends and loved ones and so he chooses that just like luke does he goes to fight um uh, azula and then ended up being zuko as well and then you really start to see how iroh has changed um and iroh is helping ang as has he had helped uh talk earlier in the season um and so now you have zuko at his crossroads of destiny it was crossroads of destiny for every character in the show not just the main character and to me that was brilliant and it, i think it set up book three brilliantly well it, it, i mean it's definitely between book two and book three um if i were to pick if I were to pick my favorite, I definitely see both of you guys' points. I definitely, I think when I watched it when I was younger, I probably would have said book two because yeah, book two did have that amazing finale. You had the Appa episode. Book two was when the Avatar world really started to expand. You started getting arcs and threads in between episodes a little bit more versus season one, which was more, which was more episodic. But um, my second, but like viewing it now as an adult, because I rewatched it, like everybody did on Netflix, I I think book three might be my favorite because I do really like the conclusion and you do see, you get a lot of good, you get so many good payoffs in book three that make it like just super satisfying. You know, you sort of see, you see the downfall of Azula, what I think is really good. You finally see Zuko move from being, he goes from being like a villain to an anti-hero to finally being a good guy. Like Aang, Aang realizes what kind of avatar like he wants to be. Like season three, I think to me is probably the best just because I, like I said, I liked all the the satisfying conclusions um, towards the end. Even though I think book two was really good as far as like just making the show what it was and cementing it as like such a great show, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. One thing I do want to th- throw in about book two, because I didn't, is the introduction of Azula, May, and Ty Lee. Because Azula as Zuko as a villain was always different as than Azula as a villain. Because Zuko, I didn't really fear him. It was more of like he's the bad guy of the show and as things time went on you started to understand him more as a a person azula she was a fearsome villain just right off rip um and you know especially when as soon as you saw the lightning you're like um i'm sorry what just happened um and then you saw how she used fear and manipulation to control everyone around her including her best friends may and ty lee um who both May and Tylee were not vendors, but they were still a force to be reckoned with against vendors. Um, and one thing that I think is interesting and also uh, bringing in Suki is for the non-vendors of the show, you have uh, fighting styles unique to those vendors. So Suki fights like a earth vendor, Tylee fights like a fire vendor, um, and Sokka, who was a non-vendor, learned bending styles from non-bending arts from all four um all four nations which you know Sokka's the non-avatar of the avatar world but uh he's a normie yes he's a normie 
one thing I, I do want to say that 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 uh that you being like work not I think afraid or like feeling that sense of you know um power from Azula is that Avatar is one of the few shows that comes to mind immediately for me where the main villain initially by this I mean Suko and is like I need to redeem my honor arc you pity him mm-hmm. and it's never preachy it's it's never like it's, it's the Avatar does a really good job of allowing for empathetic connections with people who you see as the bad guy but aren't necessarily bad. Like there aren't any like my job destroy people, villains, you know. Except maybe like Combustion Man, but he I was, was gonna assassin. say Spark Boom Boom Man, yeah. yeah. But he was an assassin, you get it. He 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 was there for money. So like even that even where there was like not much like reason there, it would be weird to have like an assassin that was like, oh when I was three I was, you know, I saw dolphins for the first time and have never been the same since, you know? So like, even it makes sense, you know? Um, yeah. And I, yeah. Cause you even are able to empathize with the Zula, um, because you know, she's always trying to be a perfect daughter. And one mm-hmm. of the things I saw, I think it was, uh, shared on my face two days ago or maybe yesterday was that in, when you see the flashback of Zuko having Ozai, and you zoom in on his face, and then you see the pit, uh, right before Zuko gets burned, and then when you see Azula, once Ozai yells at her when she's trying to say, "Why aren't you taking me with you?" It's a near identical look of fear, mm. where Zuko's like, "Oh my God, my uh, father is about to burn me," and Azula's like, "Oh my God, my father's about to burn me." And so, even though Azula was the perfect child that Ozai loved and always praised. She is still fearful of it. Was Leaves from the Vine book two or three? Book two. It was in the um, filler episode where each character sort of had their own little like three minute episode, which is also something that's rarely done well. Filler episodes. Yeah, you know, you know, some you know a series is good when the filler still slaps. Right. I'd agree. This shows a level of detail. Um, so next question is, what is your favorite episode? <sighs> um, my favorite episode, it's a cliche, but I think I'm definitely gonna have to go with, even though it's not a book three, Apple's Lost Days, I thought, mm-hmm. like, it, it, it's rare you get an episode that's focused on, like, a non-human creature, you know, and you... It, it did a really good job of you felt what he felt in that episode. You know what I mean? It did mm-hmm. a really good job. There was some foreshadowing in it for things that happened later, as well as Easter eggs of things that happened before. It was, I mean, well written. There was a ton of detail in it. It was super emotional. Um, so that that's probably my number one. What about you, Nemo? So here's the part where you realize the person that gets cold called didn't do the reading. Um, <laughs> I, I, I I will say my favorite episode is I want to say this is also book three, the Sokka's Master episode where he learns uh, swordsmanship and like um, because I really like um, 
PN Dow. The the Pi Show guy, White Lotus guy? Yeah, PN Dow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I did like him, but what I did like about that episode is it really put a um a capstone on Sokka's process of mature mature maturity. Because that's the weird thing about the show. It's like it's a Bildungsroman for hella people. Like it's it's Aang's coming of age story, although he's like 112, but still is him, you know, maturing. Then it's Sokka maturing, and then it's um, uh, what's his name, Katara maturing, and establishing her identity and overcoming the patriarchy of her traditional village and all that. Right, but it was really cool to see Sokka um, exhibit mastery, and this would have been. Um, this is book three, so but so this would have been after his father recognized him as a warrior, right? Mm-hmm. So you had the moment where Sokka was recognized by his father as an adult, and that was also like a, a that was an earned for a moment. But then you also have this um, it's basically like this 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 welcoming to welcoming into the fold of a of a secret society. Mm-hmm. Um, which, because um, I think after after the after he becomes a swordmaster, he gives him like like the pie show piece, right? Yeah. So I don't I don't I don't think in that moment he becomes like a member of the White Lotus, but I think there is some implication of that recognition, right? Right. Of, like the you there was a, friend in there was there was a what is it? There was ceremony involved, you know, and it was just beautiful to see that. Um, and one of the characters that I got to see grow up from being like an annoying teenager who's good-willed but like still annoying to being, you know, an annoying adult. <laughs> still good-willed, you know. And I just thought it was a beautiful thing. And also, dude has a fucking obsidian sword. Like, that's gangster world. Well, a meteorite sword. Like, it's dope. All right. Yeah, and that's, the, uh, and that's also the scene where there's that cool fourth wall break where Toph is given the shard of the meteorite and mm-hmm. then she morphs it into the Nickelodeon splat. Yeah. And it was dope. It's like, yeah, we did that. Yeah, our animators <laughs> did that. Yeah, you loved it. And I'm like, damn, you're right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Nickelodeon. I needed that. Um, so I'm going to go with uh, Sokka's Master. Uh, my favorite episode is also book three. It's the Avatar and the Fire Lord. Because mm. I thought the duality of seeing uh, Avatar Roku tell the story to Aang and for Zuko to read the story from Fire Lord Sozin's perspective uh, was interesting. And it showed how they were the best of friends and became bitter enemies. And you juxtapose that with Aang and Zuko, who were bitter enemies and then became the best of friends. It really showed um, how things came together. Um, and then the whole point of Iroh giving or telling Zuko about this is that Iroh is trying to employ the part of something you said earlier, Nemo, which was you decide your own destiny, not the external authority, because he came from his Zuko's duality came from his great grandfather, who was the Avatar, and his great grandfather, who was the Fire Lord, who plunged the world into World War. So you had the ultimate keeper of the peace and the ultimate warlord, and you're the descendant of both. So you have a choice, and this is why there's such a battle with things. Um, 
and it was a skeptical filled with humor, filled with grace, and you know, Roku shouldn't have been listening to the ocean and shouldn't have taken on that ball game. That's my head camp. So I think Seth has actually joined. I don't know um, if she can hear us. I know she's on mute right now. Seth, can you? Uh, Are you there? Yeah. Yes, I can hear you. Oh, okay. okay. Yes, she's here. Hello. So Seth is another friend of mine. Seth, um, Seth if you want to introduce yourself for the people. I'm Seth. Hi, Seth. <laughs> I don't know what else you want. What do you do? <laughs> What's up? Who, you, who are you? What do I do? I'm a law um, I'm a law student. Um, a giant nerd. That's all. <laughs> um, currently camping, so I may go in and out. Okay. Uh, so. Um, so one thing uh, to just catch you up. So we've talked about why do you love the show? What's your favorite book? And what's your favorite episode? I don't know if you want to tackle any of those questions or all of them. Uh, I love the show because of the way that they, I feel like, um, the way it's written and the, their approach, uh, the way it's presented, I feel like the show tackles very real world issues and very adult issues, but it makes it very palatable or very simplified in, um, in the way that it presents it to kids. Um, like you don't even realize quite, um, what they're addressing, um, because of the nature of like how they went about presenting it. And I feel like it was a very artfully done. Um, people say it's like one of the original anti like fascist shows. And I feel like that's accurate. Um, and I don't know that I have a favorite book or a favorite episode. Cause honestly, Zuko's redemption arc is like my favorite thing. And I don't think that spans one episode. I know that sounds like lame. It sounds like a cop out. But who judge you for it? It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I love Zuko. Um, honestly, Avatar Aang got on my nerves because he was so whiny. So. <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect segue into the the next question, which is your favorite favorite character. Like, I love Toph. I thought you were gonna say favorite ship. Okay, glad we're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shit. Uh, yeah. So, who is your favorite character? For me, it's Toph. Um, Toph and who are we starting uh, with? Boo! <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 uh, I loved Katara's growth. Um, even though you know she was always ragged on for being motherly, she was an extremely powerful bender. Um, she fought the patriarchy. Um, she was heavily protective of her group, and I, I honestly think it gets downplayed how powerful she was, um, and the strength of her character in overcoming the grief of the loss of her mother, and even confronting the man, the killer, that killed her, and having the strength of character to not kill him, um, but to move past it, and then to be able to um, be loving towards not only Aang and Sokka, Toph, Zuko, all the others that came with her. And Toph, Toph was just amazing. She's a metal bender. She was funny. Um, she brought a different perspective to the group. She had actual sort of like 
real world experience uh, because she had lived, she'd come from a privileged background, but she actually knew how, you know, like the city and everything works. So when they got to Boston, say she knew what to expect while the other uh, people, while the other kids didn't really know. Um, and while Toph had that stubborn, tough exterior as expected as an earthbender, she was still able to display her um, emotion and her sensual fighting energy. Also, shout out to Suki. That was good. Um, does anybody else want to go? Or oh, I can. It doesn't matter to me. You can go. All right. So my favorite character is probably Azula, actually. Um, I'm a sucker for a good villain. And, I mean, for all intents and intense purposes... To me, she was almost like the main villain of the show, you know, outside of Ozai. She was super, I mean, she was intimidating. She was smart. She was resourceful. And seeing, and I thought her downfall was also really great at how you saw that, you know, deep down she was a little girl who never got the love of her mother. And that's why she was so, and that caused her to be so attached to her dad and be so attached to the Fire Nation and things like that. And she, and you can tell like when Fire Lord Ozai was like, well, you're going to be the new Fire Lord. I'm going to go do other stuff. She was super upset and felt like rejected. So, I mean, I enjoy Azula's arc. I thought that she was a great character and a great villain and was um, definitely one of the highlights of the series. Um... The lightning was super cool, especially seeing that for the first time. I'm like, they can do that? Like, yeah. I mean, hopefully that all makes sense, but I think Azula is probably my favorite character in the show for those reasons. For me, it's King Boomy. Straight up. <laughs> King Boomy is the type of adult I want to be, you know? And he was one of those... Like, uh, he was one of those guys that played a relatively short, uh, like, as far as, like, just show, like, time on the screen was relatively short compared to, say, other guys, like, say, Guru Patik or, um, who was it, um, the Air Nomad that ain't grew up with. Gyoza? Mo. The guy that might have been reincarnated into Momo, depending on like fan theories. The guy who died in the Fire Nation attack. Monkeyatsu. There we go. They were clear influences on Aang. But like, King Boomy was just around a guy nigga he grew up with, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, it's cool to see that that a, um, that a long-lost friend could meet you in the right moment and, like, really get you through some things. Because, like, when, as far as, like, the, the, the people who train Aang mentally and when uh, Boomy told him about the, uh, the Jings, you got your neutral Jing, you know, mm-hmm. what have you. I think that that was one of the moments that prepared Aang to energy bend Fire Lord. Yes. 
because like the main thing about Boomy was he was the one that was like, I'm not going to give you creativity. I'm going to help you realize that creativity is a thing that you bring out, you know? And what was most interesting about the the decision to bend um, the power away from Ozai was that Aang had the weight of history that he could consult. Like, if not, like, if not hundreds, because I don't know how long the timeline is from like the first Avatar to where Aang was, but he had some of the greatest minds of bending to consult. And each of them gave them advice that wasn't that of how they would have approached it, but it was still up to him. So Aang had to overcome the weight of history when he had the creative decision that I could just take his power away. You know, and the first time we see Aang approach a problem create creatively where he had to do the thing that didn't seem possible was when his friends were trapped in the rock candy. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, he was like, I have to get this key. I can't get this key because if I try to get this key, I will fall and hurt myself on the stalagmites or stalactites. And then he was like, wait, what if what I see as the obstacle is the solution, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was one of the first times that we see that. Cause like that, 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 that really short moment when dude was in the, was in like the metal coffin. He was like, do you need help? He's like, nah, I'm good. I'll just wait. Wait, <laughs> the fuck? You're the king. Everybody's telling you to take back the city. But you're like, no, I'll figure it out. And he did. He took his city back with his chin <laughs> because he understood timing and creativity. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that made it possible for Aang to resolve remaining a pacifist and defeating a fire lord, um, a warlord, you know. And I, I just, Uncle Iroh. Close second, but <laughs> King Boomy over all this for me. Okay. What about you, Seth? Um, Toph. I feel like Toph was one of those people who, no matter what stood in her way, whether it was disability or whatever, she was just like, I'm going to take this head on and I'm going to over, I'm going to adapt, overcome, and I'm going to kick ass. Like, she just was amazing. Like, she learned to metal bend out of necessity. Like, so talk hands down, and then Zuko. <laughs> like, just Why Zuko? debate that. Like, there's just no other. Mm. Why Zuko? Um, because I feel like he. So I feel like Zuko wasn't necessarily a strong firebender. I feel like mm. he was one of those per people who learned skills and um, um, different techniques to make. Him. Oh, I said I like Zuko because I feel like Zuko wasn't a strong bender. I feel like he had to uh, train really hard, and he had to persevere. Um, uh, he had to <laughs> he had to train and persevere to become a master. Unlike Azula, who was like who was just naturally talented. Mm -hmm. For him to stand toe to toe with her during the fight with the light, he had to learn techniques to do that. Right? Like he couldn't generate lightning; he could only direct it. She could literally. Generate years with like training with Uncle Iroh on the ship to learn basic techniques. Yet he managed to get to the point where he could like stand toe to toe with his sister. 
Um, mm. And like, I feel like that's that took work, that took effort, and that makes him endearing. Between that and the redemption arc, that just makes him a value. I have to insert two questions in here. Um, okay. If we keep call, talking about Zuko's redemption arc, who had the better redemption arc, Zuko or Vegeta? Oh, <laughs> don't uh, don't get us started, okay? <laughs> we'll be here That's for hours. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna have to. Are like you starting? Because I got answers. Because <laughs> Vegeta was more. Be- Vegeta did worse things than Zuko ever did. Zuko really was just chasing after the Avatar. Never really did that much damage. He sort of was a failure as a villain. So his redemption arc wasn't that far. Like, he didn't have much very far to climb. Vegeta had Those trees are fucking you up. (laughs) Very far to go. (laughs) So as far as it All right, what about you, Nemo? Since you had your clear answer. Clearly Zuko. <laughs> Think about it. What was Vegeta was a dick was a was a dick. He was a spoiled brat who had a planet named after him, killed his mans, um, <clears throat> betrayed his friends to get like a hype beast M tattooed on his forehead. And what's the <laughs> redemption? He got old. He got old, had a kid, settled down. What? Two kids. <laughs> yeah, okay, he got old, had two kids, sat her down. The only Everybody. thing, what happened was, Boma put some seasoned pussy on him. That's all that happened. He just oh got some. <laughs> he got some of that. He got some of that. What's the name? That Jada Pinkett. <laughs> he got some of that. Erica Batu. <laughs> and after that, magic mouth was laid on him. He oh. said, you know what? Maybe I'm going to just settle. You know, and just marry into wealth. Like he didn't have a, he didn't have a redemption. It was just okay, I guess. Like his because his whole story from the beginning was, oh, one day I'll be better than you, Kakarot. And now, like decades later, is one day I'll be better than you, Kakarot. Like there was no there was no real fundamental change in his character. He just got some pussy, and that's it. <laughs> that don't mean that to be like sexist, but that's functionally his arc. Like he's still the dude that gets wailed on to let you know. How strong the dude fighting Goku is. Like his character function never changed. So I I'm in the Zuko camp as well, especially with what Super. I think before Super, it was more of a, a conversation, more of a debate. But with Super, it really hypes on the point of he not much has, has changed. And not so much as he's the dude that gets well on the show, how strong the villain is you know for goku to beat but because you know in resurrection f vegeta beat frieza but vegeta started talking and then frieza blew up the planet and so i'm about to go into spoilers for the manga again you had goku beaten by the villain vegeta comes in absolutely wails on him is about to win and then he talked too long. Instead of, you know, Vegeta throughout the entire show, when he had a villain beat, he would just wipe them out. He wouldn't talk. Minus Cell, because Cell said he needed to be perfect for a better fight. 
What you mean minus seven? That's a big villain no, in a big no, part. No, you can't no, just no, you no, can't no, just discount that. No, no, I'm that's not what I'm saying. Oh, besides Boo. No, I'm not discounting him. I'm saying uh, that's the only thing I can think of that he didn't do that besides in Super. Um, Vegeta would just wipe him out. Kui, Zarbon, Dodoria, uh, mm-hmm. Frieza, if he, you know, when he tried. Um, and then all the you know other little villains. He wouldn't hesitate to wipe them out. Wait, and, no, just to be clear, he wouldn't be cl- he wouldn't he didn't hesitate to wipe out his mains. Yeah. So like but he they weren't even necessarily villains. They were just his people once he got tired of them. I mean, he did try. Like, they were villains of Goku's, but they weren't Vegeta's villains, right? I mean, I, I would say Queed, the, the Doria, Zabon were still his villains. I mean, Goku never even met them. Okay, I'd have to, I'd have to, I'd have to rewatch to. Those, uh, those were three people that he fought before uh, on Namek, um, mm-hmm. before Goku showed up. So. There, so there's that. So then, in in this latest uh, chapter that came out last month in, in Dragon Ball Super, you see Vegeta talk about like Pinkles talk about how Vegeta's really trying to redeem himself now, and Vegeta's like, "Oh no, I'm a villain. I know I'm going to help." Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, "Y'all just discounted everything that happened in Boo because we already been over that, mm. and we've been over it in the subsequent movies." But that that's neither here nor there. So I'm in the Zuko camp because Vegeta's arc is all over. The place. Is it even done? <laughs> no. Well, I would. I mean, I I will say part of the reason this is, this debate is kind of one sided is just because like Avatar is a show that was written with like a beginning, middle, and end in mind and had arcs planned out, so it was very easy to do. Like like Zuko's like storyline is the redemption arc, where a show like Dragon Ball. You know, part of it, you know, they kind of wrote it. They they still do kind of write it as they go because they're like, okay, I think we can end it around the Frieza saga. Oh, wait, money? All right. Well, you know, we can come up with something else. So, you know, Dragon Ball is a show that, like, grew and grew and grew far beyond, like, the author's original intentions because Shonen Jump is like, yo, dude, this is a franchise. Like, we, we need that money coming in. We got some video games being made. They're talking about making a movie. Like, you better come up with something else. Get creative. <laughs> so I think that is why, like, Dragon Ball does have an issue where, you know, with a character like Vegeta, for instance, where it is just very repetitive. You know, what they do with him, like you said, every arc is, you know, he is there to get his ass beat by the new villain so you get an idea for how strong he is. So... Yeah, I think that's um, what makes it tough because they're just they're just different different kinds of entertainment, I guess. And Dragon Ball is not the only one that's like that. Naruto has issues like that too. You know, it, it is what it is. And and as far as consistency, they also did that with the uh, super art because if memory serves, the way it worked was Vegeta fought Toppo, right? That was the balding dude. Yeah, and then he became a god of destruction. And then they were like, oh, if Tabo became a god of destruction, you know this nigga Jiren strong as shit. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so they just flipped it up for this latest villain in Super, who know who knows if that'll ever get animated and then mm-hmm. resurrection out. Um but on to the second additional question. Uh Chris brought up favorite shit in the series. Oh. Oh, oh dear lord. <laughs> Um, can I start? Yeah, go ahead. You know what? I really enjoyed uh, Sokka and Suki. Felt like they had a really 
healthy relationship, you know. Felt Hell, like, no. <laughs> felt like uh, <laughs> felt like they really. Uh, I, I don't know. I felt like they. I, I felt like their relationship worked. Sokka was a little bit sexist, and then he, you know, kind of encountered like a strong woman, and he sort of was. He he was able to grow a little bit from uh, meeting her and getting to know her and things of that nature. So I will go with yeah. I'll go with Sokka and Suki. They, you know, and she kind of, she kind of, Suki get, kind of gets to hang out and be a part of Team Avatar for like a few episodes in book three, which I appreciated. So, yeah, I don't know. I've always, I was always a fan of the Kyoshi Warriors, so that's probably my, um, my, I'll put that as my number one ship. Need more assess. So I didn't ship any of them, but I. I will say I did not like Zuko with uh, what was her name May. May. Um, I'm gonna need you to ship with this Wi-Fi. <laughs> no. Your internet isn't an entanglement. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's fine. We we understand your camping. You're it's the best low. you can. It's not I mean, a big like, deal. I was born this way. All right, Nemo, what about you? What did you say? Well, like like says, I didn't really ship the kids beyond uh, what the what the show told me because they were children, and I just wasn't imagining children fucking. But I will say one relationship that never came to fruition I thought was really cute was Toph and Sokka. Mm. You know. Yes, yes, talk to soccer. Yeah, you like that? That uh, what was it? My my was the uh, Kyoshi warrior, right? No, my was the uh, girl with the throwing daggers. You're right. Okay, so with so I'm bad with names. So there was a moment where Kyoshi warrior girl saves Toph, and then Toph is like, "Oh, soccer, my hero!" Yeah, then she's kissing him on the cheek, and then she's like. Sorry, bro. Oh, Suki. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like, hey, you know what? My health insurance. I can't afford this. Just let me down. Just let me down. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that was that was a cute interaction. But I thought that was adorable. But yeah, I didn't realize that people were shipping these kids until three months ago. I've been on. <laughs> I've been online way too much. Dude, there's so much Zuko and Katara. It is mm-hmm. ridiculous. Like anybody, any woman that's ever had like a bad boy phase, that's just like all of that was imprinted there. And I was just like, no. It's just like how if you love Save the Last Dance, you're pro- uh, you're probably in an interracial relationship. Uh, yeah. But for me, I would say Sokka and Suki as well. And when I would say shift, it's really just relationships in the context of the show. Um, I, I didn't take it beyond that, even though I definitely know some people did, especially as you know, after you got Cora and you saw some of the characters, you know, grown up, they really took it to a, a whole new level. Um, but yeah, I would say Sokka and Suki as well. I think they really worked well and you didn't see as much of like back and forth, like you saw with Aang and Katara, you know, not recognizing their feelings. Like they, they owned up to their feelings. Um, and uh, pour one out for uh, UA. <laughs> Your first girlfriend's the moon. Mm. Rough, buddy. That's rough, buddy. 
All right. So back to the the scheduled questions. Um, all right. So the next one, I don't. Uh, so both Chris and Nemo, you you both said you didn't really read the graphic novels. Chris, you said you know you have a working understanding of them. Yes. Seth, you read the graphic novels. I've only read the core graphic novels. Okay. So um, the Avatar graphic novels, uh, so there are five of them, uh, if I remember correctly. There's one called The Promise, which uh, is the first one, which is immediately after the show, and it starts to show the beginnings of how Republic City, that takes place in Korra, how that started. Um, It shows how, even though the show ended happily ever after, there was still a lot of work to be done. There was a lot of tension between Fire Nation, Kali Colony in the Earth Kingdom and the subsequent Earth uh, Kingdom trying to um, reestablish its territory and what do you do with the people that have lived here for almost like 70, 80 years? Do you just uproot them? Who, re- who rules over them? That was, that was well done. Um, and then the next one was The Search, which is about Zuko's mother, which was phenomenal. Uh, I really wish we would have gotten that animated, but we got the crappy movie instead. Um, and then the other three deal with more about the Republic City, like how it started, that one Earth Kingdom colony that eventually becomes Republic City. I can't remember. I think it's called Dao in the graphic novels. Um, and one of them deals with the merging of the uh, Northern Water Tribe and the Southern Water Tribe, how the Northern Water Tribe comes to help. And that deals with a lot of immigration issues that we see in the real world. You know, I feel like the writers were definitely inspired by what was going on in real world events because you'll see some of the sim- uh, similar phrases, I think, is like keep the South for Southerners um, and, and things of that nature. So uh, for the most part, I would say besides the prom besides the search and the water tribe one which i believe is just called north and south all the other books serve as sort of a bridge between the last airbender and cora which is sort of a detraction from the last airbender and more of a build-up for cora but i still think they're all rather well done so go read the books is what you're saying yeah, I think so. And, it, it, you know, you get to see more of your uh, favorite characters, um, and that's always fun. And one other thing that they have done are these little, like, short comics. Um, you can find some of them on YouTube. Uh, and my favorite one that I've read is uh, one where it takes place right in the middle of Sozin's Comet, but before the group leaves the White Lotus camp. And uh, someone says that Boomy is the greatest earthbender and talk takes offense to that so they have a little battle and I was like okay this needs to be animated and I think you guys should go read it because I think it's really funny and I would have loved to see that in an episode but obviously they probably didn't have time because Souls and Kama was jam packed with things. yeah it was alright I did read uh, the comic about Zuko's mom that's the one I read all the way through I thought that one was really good did some really great world building. So if you want to know what happened to Zuko's mom, you got to read that comic. Yeah, actually, they, you know, they tease you in Korra, but that one actually answers it. Um, and then the next question. 
is who is your favorite avatar and why is it Kiyoshi? <laughs> why, Chris? With a K? Uh, so, Kiyoshi has some novels coming out about her. They're not complete yet. Um, mm. But from what you, you know, gather and show, Kiyoshi was, at least as far as we know, one of the, she was the first lava bender we saw on screen. Um, she was the avatar before Roku. She was seven feet tall. She lived to be 230 years old. She created the Dai Um, she was an orphan. Uh, she didn't even realize she was the avatar until, uh, in her late teens, I believe, maybe her early twenties. Um, she really revolutionized Earth Kingdom culture. Um, she was by, so they talk about a little bit about that. They haven't really, really broken into that um in in the novels yet um but she would you know i love her phrase only through justice can you attain peace yeah I'll, i'm gonna go in the uh <clears throat> in the opposite direction of the call in the question and just like you don't say cora no oh, i wanted yeah. i wanted this opportunity to shit on kiyoshi um i'm just not really big on a person that made the uh that enabled avatar's version of COINTELPRO pro and like big secret deep state mm. like i'm just not that big on cops and it seems like <laughs> it was a cop right <laughs> and like her main the main the main people main reason people fangirl or fanboy or fan envy whatever around kill she's like haha she killed a guy isn't that cool i mean really that's the like that's the if if the message of avatar the last airbender is to be about anti-fascism. Where does Kiyoshi fit in that? Like she helped create a culture that led to there is no war in Bossing Say. Like how do you love the show, the message of the show, and reconcile being a fan of Kiyoshi? Like sure she was old and was a seven foot warrior, but she could have been on a basketball team and got more clout than that. Like, <laughs> like um, my, my, my thing is like I think that. I can see Kiyoshi and I don't know Fire Lord Ozai having like a beer together because like the the issue about only through justice can there be peace is that justice is a purely formal category in the same way that duty is a purely formal category you know and there's there are different views of what constitute justice but there are parallax views like depending on where you stay where you see the angle with which you look at justice means that its content is different mm -hmm. right there's a certain way through which i mean that was the that was the issue with a bunch of the uh the the hero villains in legend of korra each of them thought that they were doing justice each of them thought that they were moving toward peace right or like just well, to go back to to go back to like naruto and shippuden obito thought he was moving towards justice and getting towards peace. Madara thought he was moving towards justice and getting to peace. Uh, Payne thought he was moving to justice and getting to peace. It's a purely formal thing that has no true content. It's vague. It allows you to fill in. Um, and for that, and, and since that's like the takeaway, the takeaway from Avatar Kiyoshi is she killed a guy <laughs> and there was, no, there was no metaphysics of justice in her view. Like the only thing we have is like the creation of that island. Well, more than that. So the novels so far are up to like her and her 
as she just realized she can't in the Avatar. She is like her early 20s. So they do plan context, to- My only knowledge of Kiyoshi is based off of the, uh, the last Airbender, the, the comic, I mean, the, the cartoon. Yeah. So they're, they're start, they fleshed out her character more. I don't want to go too far into details because of, you know, spoilers for people that haven't read it. Also, it hasn't ended yet. Um, so there's still more to be seen. Um, and I do believe they'll probably break into what happened with the Daily because they probably weren't always bad. They probably just, like so many other things in the show, they either lost their way or someone took what was once pure and perverted it. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll see that. And then I think her, um, that she was able to stop the tyrant, not because she wanted to kill him. She would have, but, you know, she was, it was, it was like what Batman begins, like, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. Um, she literally split her island for her people and just peaced out. Uh, which, I don't know, that was- but, but, that, but that's the thing. I think that it's not enough to say she merely did what needed to be done and what happened happened. Because, like, Aang asked her. He's like, I did, did, you, did you kill him? And she was like, I didn't kill him, but I allowed him to die, and that's functioning the same thing. Like, you have to remember, like, she was a master of all the elements. She saw dude fall. She could have decided to create a gust of wind, place him back on the place on the, the thing that was moving away, mm-hmm. and create, and she could have chosen to act in such a way that the conditions for the villain no longer exist. And that's what makes Aang so powerful, and which is why he's my favorite avatar. He acted in a way that made the conditions of violence no longer exist without having to resort to violence to do that, right? And that's what makes the decision to, to bend, power bend, uh, you know, to make, make that's what makes the decision to energy bend, even at the person, even at the risk of personal cost that Aang took with Ozai, something that was a mark of heroism and showed ethics in a way that had an obligation to the other, even if the other is an enemy. For Kiyoshi, it was, if I'm doing what is just, collateral damage is collateral damage. I, right? I, will, I will say as a retort, and then I'll uh, uh, be off this we can talk, is um, that with Kiyoshi, with leading up to Aang, and I think they did this well, with Kiyoshi, you saw where she did not save the villain because out of the, the expense of her people, even though it was the villain's own fault that put them in that situation. In the same breath, in the next Avatar, you have Roku, who spares the villain, even though it was the villain's situation that put him in there. And he was repaid with the villain left Roku to die. And as a result of Roku's indecisiveness for his decision to spare Sozin, Sozin plunged the world into war. So with Aang, he had both those options to look at, and he found a third road. But th- that third road was not an option for the first two, because they never met a lion turtle, because there was only one, because the people of the world somehow wiped out the lion turtles, even though some of them fly. But that's a whole other different topic conversation. You know, I'm going to keep it real with you. I don't, I don't buy that argument. Not to, not, not to be disrespectful, but here's why. <clears throat> I personally uh, have never been on a battlefield, have never directly spoken to a a military theorist, but I've read some books, uh, read some Sun Tzu, read some Robert Greene, 
had some ways to interact with people who have thought through conflict such that I do not have to experience the conflict to know how I should or want to approach it. Um, yes, Aang had the lives of Kyoshi and Roku to look at as models, but both Aang, but both, both Kyoshi and Roku also had all the avatars before them. So like they had the 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 prior waterbender, the guy that had like the the wolf. Um, yeah, the thing is, it's like the the thing about the avatar state is that it's not just a thing of combat. It's also it's also a deep well of knowledge. Like each avatar outside of Korra and the first avatar have access to this akashic library where they can tap into literally millennia of lived experience. So to say, oh, Kiyoshi, she didn't have the experience that Aang would have had to be able to be like, oh, this person did bad thing. I want to avoid that. Bump that. She could have had a navel gazing scenario and talked to the Avatar 40 lifetimes ago that would have also had some conflict where they had, they had an encounter between the decision to be good, the decision to do what's just, the decision to do evil for the sake of good, what have you. Every lifetime has that conflict, you know? I'm pretty sure that Roku is not the first person that was an that was an avatar who realized that because of his inaction, he allowed a greater evil to exist. I've had experiences like that, <laughs> where due to my not wanting to act, something bad happened. That's a human experience. And to say, oh well, Aang knew better because of the mistakes that the people before him made prior. Yes, but the people that made mistakes prior also had that access. They could have read a book. You know, they could have talked to the other avatars before them that had experiences, you know, so I don't want to I don't want to give Kyoshi too much credit for just like letting a dude die because that's not the route she takes. She's like, yeah, I did it. So what? I will say one thing. Kyoshi did not create the Dai Li to be bad. And she does say that she regrets it. She ends up regretting it because of what they turn into. Mm -hmm. That's my one statement. I think that I think that you could hold a person accountable for not creating enough infrastructure to carry on beyond you. Um, in the same way that Christopher K was like, one of the things that's good about her is she was a major influencing figure in Earth culture culture, right? You can also say that is also one of the negatives. She was a major influence in Earth culture culture because she allowed for a deep state to exist without checks and balances that would prevent totalitarian rise in power. Totalitarian rise to power. Well, when she created Dai Li, they weren't the deep state that Long Fang had them be, mm. they were more like secret service for the Earth King. Mm -hmm. So they were more of like protecting the Earth King and make from essentially because like at, at this point in time during the, uh, her life, there is uh, essentially a mafia gangster state in, in the Earth Kingdom that they are really running. Through. So that was really the point of the diary at that time. Now, I'm interested to see how that happens, you know, 100 years into her life or so, but those are questions we might have answers to right should now. We, should we Photoshop Kiyoshi with a uh, Blue Lives Matter hat? <laughs> uh, I think Kiyoshi would be like, I don't know, what would, what would Kiyoshi's thing do? Oh, she because with her statement. I don't she think she would have to, uh, she wouldn't have Blue Lives Matter, but I think Kiyoshi would be thin blue line. Kiyoshi is square thin blue line. But I would also think she would be 
uh, Black Lives Matter because at least that starts off with her in her life. You'd have to read the books and explain why, but with where she came from and Mm -hmm. everything she experienced, she sort of worked to. um, Okay, I'm gonna say this slight spoiler. So they didn't think she was an avatar. The avatar. Actually, don't say that. I I don't. I want. I want to. I want to. I want to discover it. Okay. All right, bye. <laughs> I love you and everything, but like, I'm sure this would have been a great argument, but don't no. hurt me. Yeah, no, but yeah, so pretty much with her, the upgrade of the, the way she grew up, I think she would have been more on the side of Black Lives Matter, but she would have been in like that weird position where it's like, okay, my, uh, you know, like I have a cop that's a family member, so I have a, a foot in both worlds. <laughs> that's where I feel like she would be. I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> um, Chris, do you have any other comments on on that? Me or him? You. Oh, me. Uh, as far as favorite avatar, um, I would probably, I, I'd probably have to go go with Aang. I mean, I think in general, Aang tried to do his best. Though I did like. One of the things I did like about Korra is that you did get to see Aang's flaws through his kids. You saw you saw Aang's shortcomings, I should say. Because towards the end of the Avatar show, you're like, alright, Aang's a hero, he's perfect, but in Korra you realize like, no, he's not. He screwed up. Just like every other, every Avatar, because Avatars screw up. It's what happens. So, um... Yeah, I would have to go because I, I agree. It's, it's not Kiyoshi, not for me. Um, and, I mean, Roku, just, just, I thought Roku was cool. Like, I did like the episode where you guys origin, the original Avatar. But um, just the way he went out with Sozin is just like, man, like, you really kind of blew it. <laughs> like, he, like, Roku, Roku really blew it really bad. Where he, you know, he pretty much like told Roku, he was like, all right, you stop doing bad stuff. And then he just went on vacation. And then he just went and lived on an island with his wife and was like, whatever. And it's like, mm, you should have, you should have been keeping up with what he was doing and did what you had to do, you know, if right. it was necessary. Right. Cause, you know, you had the conversation when you got married to not, uh, you know, like that's the last you want to hear about colonies. And then, like thirty some odd years later, you see that there are multiple colonies, not just one. And you think just because your friend, uh, you spared your friend's life, he's gonna stop? Like, no, because you're not actively watching. Yeah, but um, so yeah, I guess by default, I have to go with Aang. Um, I don't, I don't really want to bring Cora into this. I think that's, a, that's one of the last questions, right? Yeah. Uh, one thing I do want to say about Roku's death that never made sense to me is, okay, once everybody got away on a boat, you did not need to fight the volcano anymore. Hmm. Well, how far were they? What does does a volcano gas kill people? It kills people, right? Yeah, but the gas wasn't going to get, uh, because the gas never reached, from what we saw on the show, the gas never reached the people on the boats. Interesting. And yeah, so there's that. And you know, I don't know. Roku was old, so he 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 probably uh, I don't know. They probably needed a way for him to die. They couldn't think of another way to actively do it. What with the story? 
telling device that was there uh, nightly. Um, yeah, so the, the last question is, uh, or I guess it's the last discussion is going to be talking about the legend of Korra. All right. Uh, I can start because I, I think you're, you have a, Nemo, you, you have a lot to say, don't you? About Korra. <laughs> I'll go out, I'll go out, I'll is go out in front. Yeah. The I was like, you know what? I can tell. I was like, you know, I'm gonna go out go out in front and say what I have to say and then give you the floor. Alright, so my thing with Korra is that like Korra's a good show. It's just not Avatar the Last Airbender. And Korra's always gonna be hurt because it's a sequel series to a show that was pretty much amazing, that was like lightning in a bottle, to the point where even those creators have gone on to do other things, like the Dragon Prince and stuff like that. Still not as good as Avatar. So that's one thing that's that's always going to hurt Korra. And then Korra had a lot of issues with Nickelodeon where at times they didn't know if they were going to get another season, which is why like season one of Korra is very self-contained. Season two of Korra is kind of self-contained. And then season three and four were kind of made back to back. So season three kind of had a cliffhanger. And then season four, they tried to wrap up, you know, what they could. And there are less episodes overall, right? Shorter seasons, Chris. Correct yeah, me if I'm wrong. About twelve to thirteen episodes. Yeah. So Cora had a lot, I think, working against it. It has its bright moments. I mean, it does expand on the lore of Avatar. You know, so if you are someone who loved the original show, it is definitely something that you should check out. But Cora has a lot of writing issues. I don't think the characters are as strong in many places compared to the um, the original show. But, yeah, I mean, my, my verdict on Korra is just that it's a good show. Like, if you give me, like, there are plenty of either cartoons or anime, quite frankly, that are worse than Legend of Korra. Like, Legend of Korra is, you know, better than a lot of stuff. But it's no Last Airbender, and that's just... um. I guess that's my uh, my thesis. Nima, I'm gonna let you go. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll try to be shorter. I caught the I caught the hint. No, um, good. No, you, no, 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 you're good. I just know so you someone said something about Cora before and you met a face and I was like, you gonna have a lot to say. <laughs> Did I do that? No. It's all good, so, man. Here, here's what I will say. I do think that Whenever you're doing these comparative apples to oranges thing, one of the major thing is you have to recognize what you value and how that uh, influences your your you know your decision making, right? So one thing I will say is I personally like Avatar: The Last Airbender over Korra. Like if I'm if I'm if I'm telling somebody to watch Avatar, they're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna start with Korra. I'm gonna look at them judgingly and say, don't do that. Watch the watch the watch the one with the bald kid. But what I will say is I'm more of a a people person. You know, I really like the character development in, uh, of Avatar The Last Airbender. What I will say I love about Korra is the world building. Mm-hmm. The world building in Korra is wild. Like, it went from... I mean, you have like Tech and Airbender in like the Fire Nation and bits of Embossing, say like the Earth Nation. But what what uh, 
what Cora does straight from the jump is they're like, okay, so we are now post-industrial. Like, we just, it's not that, it's not that we have welders, but we have firebenders who use lightning bending to weld, you know? And you just had like this really cool steampunk aesthetic. And it did so in a way that felt like it was a spiritual cousin to Avatar, but still allowing for it to have the space to be different and to be so, you know? And I think that they did a really good job of that, um, making it making it feel like a separate world that was later on in the timeline of it, you know? Um, I liked the, the, the little callbacks, like uh, one of the one of Hank's kids being named Boomy. You know, they're like, okay, that was cool. Like he comes on the screen, he just yells, and like you get like a good feel for him, you know. But I like that they turned uh, what is it? I think they turned bending into like football. Like I think that was a cool move. Like they they turned bending into like this football boxing. It was like a it was like a boxing MMA thing where like you had like the benders fighting against each other, and I felt like that took up a lot of the show. Like that's the thing I remember most from it. Um, it but funny, I, yeah. I loved how one thing that they that they that they saw that was a trend in Airbender, and they just amped up with this is the hybrid making of different bending styles. I mean, because in Ava, the Airbender, the first time. I mean, the thing that really comes to mind for me is when Iroh has the stick and he's drawing in the sand and he's like, all the all the things are actually connected. And then he goes there and he's like, here's why this is practical. From a water bending scroll I read, I learned how you can redirect lightning, right? But with Korra, you get that on five. So like on, on, on 11. So it's not just you can use earth bending tactics as a fire bender or vice versa. It's there like... You can make lava, nigga. <laughs> it's dope. Like it's really cool. Or how um, what was it? The the woman who didn't have arms but used uh like the like octopus. So like she had water bending. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. In the Red Lotus, yeah. Everybody yeah, in the Red, Red Lotus. Lotus. Everybody in the Red Lotus is bad. Mingua. That was her name. Mingua. Yeah. Like, and I tried to think, what was she a combination of? You know. Cause, it, cause, but I think it was like uh, water bending, but with uh, water bending with the approach of an earth bender. Mm-hmm. She was very attack forward, you know, and like she or like say um, the guy who made those lava shurikens. Mm-hmm. It was like it's weird to see. Uh, what is a fundamentally an earthbender that was that agile. He was like earthbending and um airbending. Like he moved like like Aang. Like if Aang was an earthbender, like how he would jump around and then like Toph called him twinkle toes. He was twinkle toes with the shits, right? And um just the way that the the mythos of airbending was developed. So like the guy that that was not a bender but became an airbender, like there was a whole there was a whole philosophical movement he discovered, and he was like, "Oh, the thing about airbending is like once you free yourself from loss, from these earthly attachments, you can fly, and it makes total sense." And he was Zaheer, like, yeah, okay. yeah. "Huh? Yeah, no, you talking about Zahir? Yeah, no, he yeah, he was my favorite villain of Korra, I think actually, yeah, Zahir was dope. 
but he was like, oh, I think it was like, oh, my wife died. Okay, I can float now. (laughs) It was just cool cool to see the way that they they worked in fidelity with the elements because it was like it was that one moment with the with the um he did for airbending what the woman who was trapped did for water bending right because she was like wait i don't have access to water but people are mostly water right mm-hmm. so i'm going to water bend so much that i discover like i they found ways to speak foreign with the language they were taught like you ever hear a, ter- a person that's like so good with english it sounds like they're speaking a different english they're just speaking english really good mm-hmm. like poets poets do this or writers do this uh talk did this when she was like i'm i'm so intimately connected with earth that i can recognize that metal is just purified earth so i can metal bend now right <laughs> like zahir was like i'm an earthbender Niggas need air to breathe. I'ma just suffocate you. <laughs> it was the because because the thing was he found a way to weaponize a, a um he found a way to weaponize a way of building a way of bending that was seen as being defensive and spiritual. Mm-hmm. Like he had a mental shift in what it means to control air, and that was weird. Um, and and it, it was just it was just and that's that's the level of like. World bidding that you don't really see in other shows, right? Like e- even in this, and this was this was even in Airbender when uh, Katara was fighting the woman that was trying to teach her how to blood bend. There was mm-hmm. this one moment where there was a the 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 woman who, who knew how to blood bend who knew how to blood bend. She did an attack to Katara, and the way that waterbenders tend to fight, it's like a push and pull of a wave. You hit mm-hmm. me with the wave, I'll redirect it and I'll move it back to you. Like with the fight between Katara and the, I think the the guy who fell in love with her grandmother, right? In the in the other in the other um water tribe location, right? Yeah, Pakistan. It was it was a constant back and forth. But in this fight, Katara saw water coming at her, and she stopped it, as if the water was to hit a pillar. Which means she fought like an earthbender in that moment, right? Because the waterbender response would have just been, no, no, you take it. No, I'll take it. No, you take it. She said, nah, I'm going to stop this right here, right? Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful to see how the how the, the, the world making became that. The world making became the, the fusion of these, what are fundamentally ways of thinking about the world and ways about seeing how you interact with it. You know, I, I imagine what it would look like if we saw the Avatar after Korra. Like, I wonder what would happen if they were like, what can we do to further the connection between airbending and firebending? And I had this conversation in one of the group chats and somebody said, this is just a high thought, but I'm sober and I'll say it again. <laughs> um, because if you think about it, who were the only benders that could fly in airbender? Uh, you had Aang, but he could only fly with um, well, I mean, he could also fly with like his, his ball thing. But besides that, uh, General uh, Ozai, that guy could fly because he realized that with firebending, I can propel myself and make my body a rocket, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the thing, the thing for me is it's like, okay, so firebenders can fly, airbenders can fly, 
But what is what is air bending if not the manipulation of either temperature or air pressure, right? Because that's what wind is. The sun causes heat in certain places, it's colder in other places, and the movement of those particles we call wind, right? Which is why you tend to have um, hurricanes and uh, what's the name? Things like that in tropical areas because the air is circulating because of the heat, right? What if an airbender got in a fight with a firebender and the airbender just decided you can't bend anymore, right? Because they just they just control what what they both have, which is an intimate connection with either pressure, air pressure, or temperature, right? I think I think that the, the way that they ran off with combinations was beautiful. Um, I just didn't like the people though. Like I didn't really like um, uh, Avatar Korra's arc, like her growth arc. See, like every time she just becomes like. Um, angsty in your face. I'm I'm better than you. Prideful character, and then becomes humbled. But that's the same thing in the first season, as the second season, as the third season. And then there's like that she never beats her own villains by herself. Like she always she gets helped. Mm-hmm. Like she really got smacked by some dude that's only been airbending for like a week. Really? You a whole avatar? Had specialized training since you were three. Yeah. Like and here's the thing. Like as far as like. Aang, his whole people died. Like they got massacred. She had she basically uh, Korra basically grew up in a prep school where he had like the the White Lotus and all these people catering to her, and she she was good at like three elements out of four and like six. So like a lot of her story, a lot of her story was like it felt like some kid with a silver spoon in her mouth you know, fighting the big bad and not even being able to do that well. So I just didn't really have a connection with Korra as a character. Who knows? There might be some sort of latent sexism. But I just I just didn't enjoy um the 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 arc of growth that uh Korra had. But um I love the relationship between the the adventure guy who would always just say do the thing oh, and then uh, that woman that like understood and then he was like you do the thing and then got married. Like I thought that was cute. That was one of my favorite ships. That's actually my favorite relationship out of the Avatar. Uh, <laughs> you, she, yeah. he, he didn't deserve her. She oh. she did it down for him. Yeah, she did. Yeah. Was um, it Julie? Was that her name? Julie. Yeah. Julie and Barrett. thing. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, you were right. I was long winded. So. I'd, I'd, Sorry, Chris, you can go. Go ahead. Now, I was going to say, you, you mentioned characters. I like Tenzin a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, for for me, uh, with Korra, a lot of, like, there are a lot of people that say, you know, Korra is a failure of a show, mostly because they're comparing it to Avatar. They they wanted to probably you can't, more. You can't. Well, that's, that's the flaw, is that you can't compare it to Avatar. Once you stop doing that, you can enjoy it as its own show, and it's fine. Yeah. Right, and they. And I, and I had that thought at one point. I was like, "Yeah, I'm the I'm the problem here," but that's also like, I feel that way about the uh, the thing that Dave Chappelle puts out. Like, he's one of those artists that, despite how great, like, politics society could be better, but despite how great the things he put out he puts out will be, he will forever live in his own shadow. Like, he can't top the Chappelle show, but he still has some good hits. 
straight up. Like some of his stand-up specials, love them. Kill them softly, great. And but it doesn't match the show. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. And it was one of those things where, like, I think whatever we have of Avatar, at least Korra, it was that. It was like Airbender the Chappelle show. Kill uh, what's the name? Korra is like some later thing that was released. Like it's still good, but it's like well, uh, what I you see can't beat nostalgia in the comments for people talking about Korra is they more wanted a show showing the grown-up characters uh, from Avatar The Last Airbender. That's the mm-hmm. show they wanted. Um, and so Korra as a, its own show. Um, so things I love from Korra, some of the things you already talked about, Nemo um, and, and Chris, uh, but some of the things, uh, the villains. The villains, besides Unalak, Amon was great as a villain. So good. And the Red Lotus were great as villains. Mm. I loved Kubira as well. Um, In terms of uh, when you were talking about earlier, uh, Nemo, when you were talking about uh, Kyoshi and how all the villains thought they were doing the right thing, I would say that was good for Zaheer and Kubira, but um, um, Unalak just wanted more power. And I, we're not really sure what Amon's deal was because when you reveal that Amon is a bloodbender and he's trying to do like this equalist thing, is he yeah. just making more power because he's not really making things equal because he himself is a bender? Well, the um, the and here's what I think that what makes the um what makes the villains and Korra interesting is I remember they each had their own like self-coherent philosophical approach to power and authority, right? Mm-hmm. So Zaheer was the guy who became airbender, right? Right. I remember him as being an anarchist. Mm-hmm. And he saw he saw the the infrastructure that surrounded the cult of the Avatar as being a thing that functioned like a state. Mm-hmm. And that I got. Um with Mask Dude, who was a bloodbender. Amon. Amon. I took that conflict to be anti-caste. Because yeah. the thing about the world bending of Korra is that you had the haves and the have-nots. You had the benders and those who couldn't bend. Mm-hmm. And what made Amon so inspiring is that you had all these people who so far have felt powerless and not seen as being worth of value, they had a way to fight back, you know? Like, they... It kind of feels kind of mad at when I think about it. I'd have to watch it again. But it felt like what made Amon interesting as a character was that he found a way to speak to the silent majority. Mm-hmm. He was like, you live in a culture where, despite the things you do, because you can't weld with your hands, you are seen as less valuable than the person that can, right? And what he represented was a threat to that social order. And I respect that. And I see I see that as being a, a great villain. Kind of like a Joker from mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if this is a, a strong connection, but that's the association that came to mind. Okay. Um, and then what was it? The uh, what? Uniclock? Uniclock? Uniclo? <laughs> what was it? That guy? Uniclock? Uniclock. 
That's like, that was like the Dark Avatar guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was such a great concept, handled poorly. Yeah, so that was that was like a traditional, um, uh, Manichaean good versus evil battle that is like the story through time is oh. the battle of good versus okay. evil, and that's that was that that was that um that was that arc, which I thought was a little cheap. Like I didn't really like that arc. Nobody but I got did. To see I got to see Uncle Iroh again. I think that's when Shardy went to the spirit world, right? Yeah. When we saw, so we take that. I liked me seeing the first Avatar, Avatar One. That's when people mm-hmm. remember any. If, pe- if people remember anything from that season, it was oh, Avatar One. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So for me, it was weird that like I felt more. I felt more of a connection with Avatar One than I did Korra. <laughs> um, I felt like he was way more personable. For for me, Cora, it just well. Let, let me let me continue other things I li- I like from the show before I start talking about things I didn't. Um, oh, yeah. So yeah, season three was great. Uh, Zaheer and the Red Lotus, their bending abilities, their philosophy, encounter um, counter. You know, compare it to where what we've seen with the Avatar and how the world sort of developed around her, especially with the White Lotus. Um, I love that juxtaposition uh, with Kuvira. You saw the uh, how the events of the previous season really impacted the world with the death of the monarch and how Kuvira was able to come in and she united the Earth Kingdom and it was in a uh, goal that was justice and was proper and was for peace. But then along the way, she was just like, well, these people can't handle it, so I need to, and I need to do it my way, and whoever gets in my way is getting out the way, or I'm going to run them down. And so you had a uh, compelling villain there, Amon. He, I mean, he was just a very compelling villain from his outset. Um, I, 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 did start to, I did like him a little less when I found out he was a bloodbender, but he was still a force to be reckoned with, and even... When he uh, he was bloodbending and taking away bending, but he was still not bending when he was fighting everybody else. And the only uh, element he could not win against was air, which I thought was a, a very potent point. Um, I loved uh, Asami as a character. I think she had the best part throughout the show. Um, I loved Tenzin and all his entire family, his wife and his kids. They were all great. Um, I did like Avatar 1. I did like that world building, showing where bending came from. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how people wiped out all the lion turtles because, you know, while you could, I can see you doing like the earth one and the fire one and the water ones because people are terrible. I don't see the air nomads being as peaceful as they are taking out the air lion turtles that are literally fly. That just doesn't make sense to me. Um, how but, do you even kill something that big? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. People are dedication. Yeah, dedication. Um, Let's find a way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when it comes to Cora, like you said, Nemo, she, she was very stubborn and in your face, and that's fine. But she got beat so much, but she was still like, okay, I'm still going to do things my way and not listen to what the people say around me, that that just started to rub me the wrong way. And she just got humbled so much. And, uh, you know, she got 
She got beat by Amon. She got beat by Unalak. She got beat by Zaheer. She got beat by Kuvir, even though that one's sort of like she only got beat because she was still poisoned from Zaheer. But with... One thing, one thing I want to say, she got beat by inanimate objects. Remember that moment where she was trying to learn airbending and those revolving doors fucked her up, dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with when I want to focus on season two, because that I think that is the worst season. I think that is the only truly bad season in uh, both shows because you had such a great concept in the dark avatar, but it was poorly realized because you have essentially when he gets uh, Batu in him and he becomes Una Batu or however you want to call it, he was only a souped up waterbender. He was essentially uh, Ozai, but with waterbending and mm-hmm. For Korra to be beaten that badly having, and I don't even think at that point she had quote-unquote mastered all four elements. She was very proficient in them, but I don't think she was truly a master in them at that point. Um, and she hadn't connected to her spiritual side, really, so she wasn't that effective in the Avatar state. You know, she got beat by Batu, beat so badly that it wiped out the rest of the cycle. And I w- I'm okay with you starting the cycle anew because that's really what a lot of things in the show are about with reincarnation and cycles and everything like that. Um, But if I would have done season two differently, I would have um, introduced the red Lotus as a whole before then. And then have um, you see that Unalak pre, you know, becomes the dark avatar. He loses the Korra. But then he goes back to the Red Lotus and they train him on how to master all four elements. So then in season three, you have a full dark avatar versus light avatar. And you actually have a battle between two masters of all four elements. And then you can see Korra start the cycle anew um, after, you know, getting uh, uh, whatever the light spirit's name knocked the crap out of her. I think that would have been better. Uh, I think it was story- Rava. Yeah, Rava. I think that would have been better story-wise. Um, and then for me, the rest of the characters besides Varric and Julie were namely just sort of sort of bland. Um, like, uh, for instance, Bolin. I used to think Bolin was really funny. Um, but then as I rewatched the show, I just did it like a couple months ago. Uh, he was really sort of a leaf in the wind in every single season. He always thought he was doing what he loved, and then by the end of the season, he was like, ah, I don't like this anymore. They even make a point of that in one of the graphic novels. Uh, his uh, brother uh, says to him, like, you always think you love what you're doing, but, you know, like a few months later, you're doing something else, and you think that's your calling, and then a few months later, you think something else is your calling. You don't know what you want to do. I'm like, you can you just ran smack face into the point that doesn't make me forgive you for making that you know sort of that character flaw um i can't remember his name but bowen's brother was a wet uh, was a wet Marco, no, Ma- Marco was the worst yeah, he, was. he was probably he, my he, least favorite character yeah. out of anyone in that show actually yes yeah he yes. cheated on the Tommy and cora um and so yeah, so he was just the worst. Uh, I did love, I did like Opal. I like Toss, pretty much Toss' entire line. Um, oh, always has been, always will be. Yep. Uh, to sum up uh, my feelings on on Korra as an avatar, I, I quote the great Toss Bay Pong, 
man, you really are the worst avatar ever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think Korra had Korra is a sort of better version of the sequel trilogy of Star Wars. It had a lot of potential. It fulfilled some of that, but it failed in uh, various aspects of it. Um, but I still think it is a, a good show and touches on and builds on some of the um, themes that Avatar did while exploring its own. Um, I wish it would have gotten uh, better writing treatment and better treatment from Nickelodeon. Um, and I wish we did get to see more of Avatar 1 because I really did enjoy that. Uh, that two-parter building on the world. Yeah, and I mean, no, I mean Korra's not a bad show. I've watched a lot of bad anime. <laughs> like, I know... <laughs> I know when something is like, okay, that's actually bad. <laughs> I mean, I'm the person... I mean, I read Bleach to the end. I read Naruto to the end. You know, I'm still reading One Piece. Like I've seen, I've seen stuff where I'm just like, oh my god, what are they doing? So you're gonna, you're gonna be reading One Piece for the next twenty years, bro. I know, yeah. and the author, and it's bad because like the author is sick and like in and out of the hospital, and I'm like, homie, you need to just to, like take a break. It's okay. <laughs> All right, well, Sess is the true Cora lover of us. Uh Sess, you want to talk about it? Yo, y'all slander my girl so much. I'm you didn't slander her that bad. Well, you have Cora should be tired of losing. How about that? Oh my god. <laughs> they hear Airbender for three weeks and whooped her. I was nicer, okay? Sorry, you can go. Listen, I, I won't say she was the best avatar, but she did master three of the elements really young. Not master. She did not master them. I feel like she was just super reckless and headstrong, and that led to a lot of. She did. What, the, what she was not in, uh, what she did not master, and it took her forever to master, was airbending because she was not in touch with her spiritual side, and it took her for a long time to even tap into it. But she, I feel like she mastered water, fire, and earth a lot faster than Aang. Aang did it in a year. She struggled getting in touch with like a calmer, more thoughtful side. Aang had to learn three. He had only learned air when he like when he came back. She had she knew three and then struggled to learn air. Right. But like, she had as as Chris said earlier, she had prep school for it. And <laughs> had summer classes. And Aang was a true master of airbending, which is why he had his tattoos. You know, Cor we don't even actually see Cora use water bending all that much, honestly. No. Aang had to find all of his instructors on Craigslist. <laughs> Yo, he said, he said. Core was also super sheltered. Huh? Shel like, Core's masters also super sheltered her and, like, enabled her in a way that sort of. Oh, no. Are you saying her masters had given her a place to stay? <laughs> this nigga was homeless. Aang <laughs> was homeless. Like, they, they, paid, they babied her to the point where she was sort of ineffective because everyone else fought her battles for her. It was one of those Harry Potter moments. Well, she's like, super privileged. Okay, so what her. you're saying is you're comparing Cora to the dude who inherited millions as in that struggle? I'm sorry, but that that's not hitting, fam. <laughs> like, that's like, 
Oh my god. I'm saying she had potential and it was wasted. I'm saying she had a lot of potential and she wasted that shit. Okay, I'm gonna say she was You said she had a lot of potential and she wasted it. The way I read it is Yes. She wasted it. It's the same. She had a lot of potential. Like the waste comes first. <laughs> like she blew a worse head start than she had to have. Listen, to waste. she Avatar Cora blew a worse head start than Google Hangout blew to Skype. <laughs> then, then, then Zoom. Then Skype, Skype blew, blew to Zoom. Then Skype blew to Zoom. Yes. Yep. And then <laughs> see. I was thinking about Cora so much, I messed up even in my statement. Oh my god! <laughs> Cora was in diapers, talking about some. Yeah, I can do all the you things. Give me another month, and I'm gonna have air bending. Now she's 27. She can't make air puffs. <laughs> she had tutors. She had. She had. She's still a teenager when she learned. She, she was, was an older teenager. She was 18. You know how old Ang was? Thirteen. Twelve. Actually. Did his ball drop yet? <laughs> like he didn't even complete puberty, and he oh beat the head of a nation with one ball. <laughs> one ball. <laughs> Cora was trained by a transnational force. The White Lotus. <laughs> like, the White Lotus okay. is a higher governmental authority than all the nations. And she still got her butt beat by some dude who was like, oh, I can make a fan with my hands now. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right. Cora was, Cora, I, like, I, do, I do want to say one thing Cora. about uh, uh, Zaheer. Because while Zaheer gave everyone that work, the work person he could Trabajo. not was Tenzin. Tenzin gave Zaheer the work. And honestly, Kaya sort of held her own against Zaheer. He escaped. He ran from her. But I also thought Kaya was a wasted character. Tenzin was showcased well, obviously, he was the main character. And Boomy was showcased more, especially in the later. But Kaya was just sort of there. And that was a failure. Here's, here's the thing. Tenzin, okay, cool, give him credit, but also recognize he was taught by literally the best airbender on the planet who was also the avatar. So there's an expectation that he was good at airbending, right? Because the thing with Aang that made his, that made like his, his, because Aang's problem of adulthood was one of inheritance. He was one of the last of his people, and he had to pass that on. That's why he wanted. That's why it was so stressful. Or like, it must have hurt him when he had a kid that wasn't a bender at all. Boomy, right? So when he had a um a kid that was an airbender, he was like, "Okay, you get all my time." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like it's like a rich kid that gets into a good school. It's expected of you. Congrats, you did the norm. Like, yes, Tenzin was great. Look at his teacher. Well, no, I, I don't mean that as a as a um as a slight on on um Zaheer or anything, but it showed that um everybody else that Zaheer went up against wasn't really a master like Tenzin was. Um besides maybe because mm-hmm. their fight got interrupted. But Korra had four elements against Zaheer's one and still caught that work. 
you know, Zaheer, fresh out of jail, when he had just got airbending, was able to beat those three, I think they had three of the nations represented their benders. Um, so that was, uh, that showcased his skill outside of it. So, I mean, I, I think that uh, they shouldn't have had, you know, Cora lose so much. I will say one thing, though, about uh, Legend of Korra's world bending, world building that I think is actually had to have been a major oversight. Like, they had a character who was so successful at overcoming his worldly attachments that he could literally fly, be prideful. Like, Zaheer was a brilliant military mind for him to do the things that he did with the amount of resources that he had, which were very little. And the reason that he lost was because he couldn't shut up. Like, there was a scene where the Avatar was functionally dying. She was already poisoned. And then he's like, hey, there's nothing you can do. She's poisoned. Ha ha. And that's when the little airbender kid said, hey, you know what? The poison is is metal-based. Maybe we can bend the poison out. If he would have just shut up, he would have won. <laughs> or he All he had to do was remain silent. He didn't think that? You mean to tell me a man who overcame all earthly attachment fell because of pride? He was Icarus. He flew too close to the sun. That was whack. But I do think that... I think that was... that was, If If that's the case, then that's like... I don't know what the inverse of plot armor is, but that was the inverse of plot armor. Well, I think we we had seen that throughout throughout the show. Um, the pride that he had, that he thought that his way was the right way for the world, regardless of anything other. And he warped um, Guru Lahima's teachings to fit his worldview, mm-hmm. which to me is pride that's all about pride see like even this person agrees with me so while we hadn't seen that type of stupid arrogance we had his arrogance so eventually it was going to show up Um, i i i think we i think we differ there because i don't see that as being pride i just see that as being ideology like i think that he was acting in fidelity to an ideal and it was an ideal that was focused on um seeing the bigger picture in a way where he didn't matter as much which is how i think which is why i think that his humility was genuine Mm -hmm. and i put to him being able to fly as evidence of that it's like he may have been brainwashed yes but because he was brainwashed into thinking that his path was the only one does not necessarily mean that he was prideful. That's fair. I can see that. Um, but I don't think his, the, any really emotion is not an earthly attachment, if you see what I'm saying. Like his love to um, Plea, I think that was the name, Plea. Uh, was the attachment versus, it, you know, how you're saying, like, his ideological belief was not an earthly attachment. So his, 
pride in, in my argument, his pride in his earthly, in his ideology wasn't going to keep him from uh, doing that. It's sort of like how uh, Avatar Yang Chen, which was the airbender avatar before, Aang, was telling him that, you know, the airbenders are telling you that you need to be free of earthly attachments and free from the world. But as the avatar, your duty is to the world. Mm. Zaheer thought his duty was to the world, but he was not bound by it. If that makes sense. Well, well, my thing is, and here's a, I think, and I think a similar question to this is the question of like, if you're going to therapy, like when does therapy stop? You know, therapy doesn't stop when you no longer have tendencies to, I don't know, be codependent or whatever, or like be like, um, um, I don't know, neurotic or whatever you go to therapy for. Therapy stops once you've realized the issue, right? And you are able to approach the issue in a way that is not pathological. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with detachment. You are not detached because you no longer feel emotions. Detachment is a way that you relate to your emotions, which is why Guru Batik talking to Av- Ang, Avatar Ang, he said, the only way that you can enter the Avatar state is if you release your attachment to Katara. But to do that was not the same as saying to reach the Avatar state, you can no longer love. Right. You can mm-hmm. still you can still um, be detached, have a relationship to the world that is something equivalent to the ending of therapy, something that is equivalent to like Nirvana or what have you, but still have connections. It's just that you, ch- you shift the way that you relate to your connections. Because if the case is you overcome by no longer having emotions like pride, you, you also that would apply for every other emotion. It would apply for joy. It would apply for happiness or pride of sadness, but you can still be detached and feel things. Rather than that, the idea that to detach, if you understand detaching as being, I no longer feel, that's just anhedonia. You know, that's just extreme stoicism, which is still attachment to an ideology of what freedom is, you know? So I guess, I guess I'll, I'll reverse a little bit and say, because I'm connecting it to something else when you brought up Guru Patik, uh, it's not the uh attachment as that is the issue as much it's the fear of lose the fear of loss being the attachment or yes. being part of the attachment yes um, so you can love but if you you can love and that's fine nothing's wrong with love and the same way that you could feel frustration and feel hate like one of the things guru says to avatar is let the thoughts happen right mm-hmm. but the issue is when you dwell on them when you dwell on them when you over identify with the emotions as not a thing that you feel, but a thing that you are or a thing that you need. Mm-hmm. So like Avatar could feel love for Katara, but if he saw himself as a lover of Katara or as a person that must be protected, that duty to protect gets in the way of him being able to relax, relate to the world without the barrier. Right. Where he sees himself like, it's like, have you ever, um, have you ever experienced flow? Like, uh, like if you're like, I experienced this when I was boat building, but like if you're like in the middle of a task or like if like you're riding a bike or what have you, or maybe driving, maybe drivers feel this. I've never driven. I don't have a license. But there's a certain point where you realize that your body is in the doing, but you aren't, you aren't necessarily aware of the doing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's what it's about. 
Because in that moment, you are acting, but you aren't attached to what you're doing. It doesn't mean that you aren't focused, but it's your relationship to the way that you are moving in the world isn't, I am this person that must do X. It's just that you are the person that is happening to do X, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like that with emotion. At least that's the way I understand it. Yeah. And another avatar relation back to Star Wars with Guru Patik and Aang, it's Yoda to Anakin. You must train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. Mm-hmm. But you can you can let go of that and still experience fear. Right. It's just you also let go of the thing you feel. Right. Yeah. This is not a kid's show, yo. <laughs> yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's a kid's show, but it's not. Yeah. Get a... Uh, get a- Get a senior thesis out of this. Mm-mm. No, no, no. I mean, I liked, I really enjoy um, all these conversations. I mean, I've definitely learned things just being here. So I um, I really appreciate it. Chris, that was all your questions, right? Yeah, that's all. That's all I had. Because we're, I mean, all, I we're about to hit the two hour mark. So I guess we can do yeah. any final thoughts about Avatar at all before we sign off. I know we lost a uh, we lost a guest um, during us. this, but technical difficulties. Blame the trees. Mm-hmm. I blame Cora. <laughs> but yeah, um, um, go ahead, Chris or Nemo. Hey, my thing is if you if you've gotten this far into the podcast and haven't seen Avatar, go watch it. <laughs> like it's it's a good time. Um, it's on Netflix, but, super accessible now. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, my 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 thing that I really enjoyed about the show is that there are times where I I, I uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender. There are a few things that are said that I return to, like uh, Iroh talking to his his nephew, his nephew, right? Yeah, yeah. Zuko. I'm not good with family relations, but he says. Pride is not the antidote to shame, but its source. You know, there are just some things that are just like really like succinct that really that really get at something. And like when you think about that small phrase in relationship to Eero didn't have an arc. It's more like a develop. It wasn't even it was a I don't know. because there wasn't like a I don't know what it's called, but Iroh was basically basically the same person at the beginning of the show at the as the end. He didn't have much character development. Like it's more of a character revelation than a character development. Sure. But like that same statement where he says pride is not the source of shame, but the consequence applies to him. Right. When he was thinking about his son's loss, uh, I, I, it had to have been that the, the way that they were thinking about that, you know, um, I would just go back and genuinely look at the relationships that each of the characters had to each other the relationship that characters had to themselves and the relationships that characters had to the world. Like one of the most beautiful moments of The Last Airbender is when it occurs twice. There's one moment where Iroh is with Zuko and he's like, who'd have thought that I'd come back to Bossing Say as a tourist, right? And then there's also a moment where they're retaking back the wall and he burns the Fire Nation banner to reveal mm-hmm. the, the, it looks like, like the Earth Kingdom symbol. The Earth Kingdom symbol. 
those are the same moment. That's the same moment articulated in two different ways. You know, right? Right. And it's the relationship the characters have to others, to themselves, and to the world that is done so well in The Last Airbender. So if you rewatch it again, because fuck it, it's quarantine. What do you have to do? Hmm. Pay attention to the relationships there. Because I think it's something that like, you see it and you realize in the same way that something that Iroh said to Zuko may not have been said to Zuko. It may have been him saying it to himself. And to say it to himself properly, he had to say it to Zuko. Because part of Iroh's journey was reparenting Zuko to make up for the fact that he wasn't able to parent the son he lost in the siege, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the things said to the characters are also said to you as the watcher, right? So try to put, try to pull through and see what is this show saying to me? What does this mean to me in my relationship to the world? That's one of the things I find interesting. So when I rewatch it, that's what I want to try to siphon through, you know, Aang saying yip yip, because like cool, cool we get it, but like what is the owl really saying when he's like, oh, every time the humans come here searching for knowledge, it's for a war. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how does that apply to us? And not just the characters in that world. Mm-hmm. That's my takeaway. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I definitely agree that the that extra layer of mes- of uh, messaging in Avatar is really interesting to look at and discuss, especially like I don't know, especially the way things are now in the world. It's just crazy. And you go and you look back, like, I don't know, I got an argument with someone online because I said the United States is a fire nation. And he got, someone got super mad who's like, in what way? And I was like, well, we are an imperialist country and so is a fire nation, you know? And it's not like everybody in the fire nation was bad, you know, but they were taught from the get-go that like, oh yeah, fire nation's the best. And hey, everyone else, like, they need us. So that's why we invade them. So, I mean, there are definitely a lot of good... I mean, there are definitely just a lot of interesting messages in there that can be discussed. And Korra, I mean, each season tried to do, you know, a philosophy kind of, you know, they tried to go after philosophy. So I don't know, watching the show as an adult, I've really, um, I've really enjoyed. And that was part of my motivation for having this podcast and I don't know. We have been talking about a lot of, well, a little more serious topics over the past couple months. So I definitely wanted something that was um, bit of a bit of a palate cleanser for this month. So I hope you all enjoyed it to all the listeners out there. Yeah, uh, I love Avatar: The Last Airbender. I I enjoy Korra. Uh, I think they are great series that require multiple viewings because you're going to get more out of them than you did on your first viewing or your second viewing or your third viewing. Um, they will uh, seeing their world and applying it to ours, you'll see a lot of different um, comparisons that you can't really do in other shows, especially shows that are made for kids. Um, the themes that they touch on, you know, each season for core, like each villain had a different thing, you know, Amon was equality. Um, Unalak was harmonies, the here was anarchy, and Kubira was unity. Uh, so just to see those themes worked out, uh, applying to characters that you're going to grow to care about um, in, in either of the show, you know, our opinions are our own, but people will identify with the different characters. Um, I think it's definitely a must watch. 
and if you can, I don't, I don't, I think Netflix should add these eventually. But the DVD that came out after the show, the full books, they had DVD commentary on it that adds more layers of the world building on world building on there. Um, so I definitely recommend picking those up and read the graphic novels if you can find them. You can buy them on Amazon. Uh, you can read them online in different places, and they will also. Um, increase your love for the shows. So support, definitely watch. Support the official release. Yeah, support the official so release. So we can lobby for that uh, that sequel series we're never going to get. Yes. The Dragon Prince is okay. If, you're, if, you're, if, if you've really got like an Avatar hole, that Dragon Prince is a show on Netflix made by the same people. I think even mm-hmm. Sokka's voice actor, he voices one of the main characters. Yep. Also, one thing I didn't uh, mention, we didn't mention about either of the show, the voice acting is incredible. Uh, you have a lot of different guest actors on there. Um, Ozai is voiced by Mark Hamill, who is Luke Skywalker. Dante Bosco. Um, Serena Williams has done a few voices. Tennis Slayer has done a few voices on there. Um, I can't remember what, what her name from Parks and Rec Serena is. Serena Williams was the, uh, the, the, the jail guard who was nice to Iroh. While everybody else is rude to him when he buffed up. Yeah. Right. And she was also a fire sage that talked to Korra in season two when, uh, right a- after she learned about Avatar 1. Oh, oh I, I got one. Uh, Cuvier was voiced by uh, Robin Williams' daughter. Yep. Zelda Williams. Um, yep. And then, um, who am I blanking on? Uh, Tenzin was voiced by J.K. Simmons. Um, Amon was voiced by Steve Bloom. Uh, so it, it has a great voice cast across both shows. Um, so you're definitely going to en- en- enjoy those as well. Yeah. All right. Nemo, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, Nemo, we appreciate uh, it. Appreciate it. And um, rest of peace to, to Mako. <laughs> yeah, all right, uh, Mako. Gone too soon. Yeah, Mako. Yeah. The original uh, voice actor for Iro, Iro, that was he did amazing work. Yeah, he was, and, and it really makes the um, the Tears from the Vine song hit different because that's one of the last things he recorded. Yeah, and th- that episode was dedicated to him. Yeah, um, Mako, he was the uh, voice of Iro. He was also the voice, the original voice of Aku and Samurai Jack. So if you enjoyed that show, that was also Mako. Um, yeah, rest in peace to him. Um, Seth isn't on the call anymore, but thank you to her for being on the call. Uh, for this podcast and uh, sharing her love for Avatar and uh, Korra as well. All right. Until next time, live long and prosper.